Welcome to a crossover of the regressives and the lost debate. And today we're going to be talking about development, gentrification, economic diversity, uh, what it means to be from a place and want to stay in that place. And I think these are huge questions. And I think the people who dominate these debates tend to have a certain perspective. And I think this perspective was, you know, on full display the other day when we were talking about this controversy around affordable housing and Chappelle and how these mega developments happen and who's responsible for them and should we be subsidizing affordable housing, et cetera. And it seems like there's there's not enough narratives here. And that's why I'm really excited to welcome my friend, Majora Carter, she's a native of the South Bronx. She's a real estate developer, serial entrepreneur, urban revitalization strategy consultant, MacArthur Fellow, Peabody Award-winning broadcaster, and she's responsible for the creation of numerous economic developments, technology inclusion, and green infrastructure projects, policies, job training, and placement programs and systems. And she currently serves as a senior program director for community regeneration at Groundswell Incorporated and is the author of the recent best-selling book, Reclaiming Your Community, you don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. Majora, it's great to have you here. Thank you. She sounds so awesome. She is. And you know what, Majora, <laughs> we were just joking about this off camera. The last time I saw you was months before the pandemic. I took a group of people up to your neighborhood, which is Hunts Point in the South Bronx. Paint the picture for us of what that neighborhood is, like the South Bronx and Hunts Point, like the history and where we are right now. Sure. I mean, the the history, I mean, we are the birthplace of hip hop, um, actually the birthplace of salsa. Um, but we were often known Wait, as- Like salsa and hip hop? Yes. Wow. I, there Amazing. you go. You learn something new every day. It's literally within walking distance of the house I grew up within in. Within dancing where, distance. Yeah, yeah. Li literally. Yeah. There you go. We sometimes do that. Um, but uh, we, when, when I was coming up, it was more known as sort of like the poster child of urban blight. And, you know, from urban renewal, um, you know, to just the, the disinvestment that happened within financial sectors that really made its place in those communities where arson, people, actually landlords were torching their buildings for arson for, to get because there was no kind of money with insurance yeah literally yeah. like you couldn't there was no investment in those communities you couldn't get a mortgage and um so people resorted to some crazy crazy things and you know there's poor housing stock and all sorts of things like that and so i grew up thinking you know having that in my in my memory like just every place and and it was a really difficult time you know when i realized later on that our communities some communities are designed that way Literally, and we call them low-status communities because it's it, those are the type of places in our country where inequality is simply assumed. You know, whether it's a inner city or whether it's a Native American reservation, whether it's a you know all-white coal mining former coal mining town or a Rust Belt town where there was industry but isn't anymore. Those are the places where it's like we're taught to measure success by how far we get away from those communities, and that's what I was responding to. And. You know, one thing that I thought was really cool, and I think this is how I even came across your name a decade plus ago, was you gave a TED talk about among the many things on your resume is that you created a park. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell us that story. Sure. So um, we had I had come back to my neighborhood after fleeing it, using education to get out as it was expected for a kid from my community to do if they had like a brain or whatever. It was just like like measure success by how far you get away. Yeah, and, and stay away. And stay times, away. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd come back and um, because I needed a cheap place to stay, which was my parents' house, um, my old bedroom. <laughs> and uh, as I went to graduate school, and it was all about, you know, and I'd learned that our city and state were planning on building a huge waste facility on our waterfront, but we already handled 
an enormous amount of the city's waste. And it was like one of those like literally light bulb moments that happened. And I was just like, you know, because I had some education and some distance, I was literally able to see that what was happening in my community and communities like it all over the country was because we were a poor community of color and thus politically vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that's when I thought, I could do something about it or not. And so, but I chose to stay. And um, I ended up, you know, we were definitely advocating a, you know, for a more sustainable solid waste management plan. But I was also, frankly, an artist at heart and was just like, we need, people need to be fighting for something and not just against it. Yeah. And so we had to, I thought, how do we change the landscape of our community so that people are seeing something that is, that's inspiring to them, that's making them want to appreciate where they are. And, you know, we, there was a small grant program uh, through the U.S. Forest Service for threatened urban rivers. And, and I was like, we should apply. And we did. And we got a little $10,000 seed grant to, to do some restoration along the Bronx River. And it became what is now a national award-winning park for excellence in urban design. And it really was a and tremendous place. it's beautiful. Place. What do we call it? What's the name? Hunts of it? Point Riverside Park. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a good good date spot. Take people up there and then it's go to the, the Boogie Down Cafe. So and you've <laughs> now, you have not just created a park, but you've, you've actually built some businesses mm -hmm. in the community. And how did you make that transition? You know, it's, I like to think that it's it was actually part of the same trajectory because I'm all about, talent retention, community development, which is one, it's how do you develop your community, but doing it from the lens of your recognizing there's talent within your community that, you know, prior to the way that we often people view those neighborhoods, we're kind of expecting brain drain, you know, the talented ones, whether academically or artistically or athletically, we're expecting them to leave as opposed to giving them reasons to stay and invest themselves. And, um, you know, and also be inspirations to others. And yeah. so I was like, we ask people, what, why are you leaving the community? You know, what do you leave it for? And they basically had a long list of things that you could not find in our community, starting with cafes, you know, bars and restaurants and things like that. And we act actively tried to encourage a real co coffee shop owner <laughs> to yeah. come to the community. It didn't happen. So we ended up partnering with someone who, uh, with Birch Coffee, which is a, has an amazing uh, series of, of coffee shops downtown to partner with us on opening one. And then it morphed into the Boogie Down Grind, which is definitely, I think, more entrenched, you know, in the hip hop history, you know, of the South Bronx. But basically it, it became that beautiful, active third space that I think our community was craving. Yeah, what I love about it is, you know, given the history that you described in the South Bronx, it's such an, like, to use it overused term, authentic place. You I know, know, that and is an like, overused term. <laughs> is it, but it's great, though. It's like, it's not like a, a hip-hop cafe, you know, in the middle of Westchester, mm -mm. you know, like, it's... Although it's it such could a beautiful be place. because it's like you know even the, some of the the, the hip hop heads out of out of Westchester or ATL or yeah, we don't Barcelona, want to, we don't want to yeah, no, people. they've like that's the beauty <laughs> of hip hop. They've like turned it into something that means something to them. That's it's that that fluidity. That's what we love about it. it it's it you know we definitely set up the foundation and, and made the bar high, but we love what what other folks do stuff with with it. Like yeah. there's like the, a, a Filipino um, uh, rapper who's just incredible. Don't ask me his name. I can't remember it. But it was just like, that. that's rap. He's speaking yeah. Tagalog, but I don't totally. care. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So. <laughs> you know, I, I, and there's something you said that I want to come back to, which is what are people looking for? Mm. Right. You gave a survey of people in your community where mm -hmm. you asked them uh, about, you know, a bunch of different things that, you know, what do they, what do they want in a community that would keep them there? 
And I think you had some counterintuitive findings, maybe not counterintuitive to you, but I think to the sort of consensus about mm. what we should be incentivizing within communities yeah. like yours. Well, well it wasn't it wasn't counterintuitive to me. Like I kind of knew what it was going to say when it came out. What it was counterintuitive was what the nonprofit industrial complex often says about communities like ours, because it, they sort of tended to treat our communities as if poverty was sort of like our natural state of being. Like almost it's a cultural attribute. And and you saw it in the type of development that happened there and the type of services that were always in those communities. Yeah. And we were like, I don't think this is the case. Yeah. You know, people literally when and you could follow what people love by where they spend their money, where they spend right. their time. Yeah. And so we were like, they're not spending their money or their time here, regardless of how little or how much they have. Yeah. So it's like, and because of that, our communities are actually literally losing. Losing, you know, just the, um, you know, not just the economic spending power, you know, of folks that could circle through, you know, the the economy, but it's also losing just like those like beautiful day to day examples of success and what, you know, and and community building. And it was like, why are we doing this? Yeah. And so when they said, yeah, that we want cafes and and restaurants and cool things like that, where I can see where I can see other folks and be seen, we were like, oh. And what didn't show up on the list? Oh, the thing, what didn't show up on the list were the things that were readily available, you know, within our community. Everything from, you know, more health clinics <laughs> and, um, you know, community centers or uh, things like, um, you know, people didn't like the fact that there was like litter, you know, yeah. just none of these things. And they were like, no, we don't need that. Yeah. And what you're not saying like, let's not have health clinics. But what you're saying is that's the conversation, right? Is let's build another beautiful community center. And what you were finding out is like, hey, like, that's fine. Like, build the community center, whatever. But we need more than that. Yes. And exactly. we need a different emphasis. And I think yep. part of what you faced is as a person who's trying to spur both entrepreneurship within your community and uh, what you call economic diversity, that not everybody within that nonprofit industrial complex are happy about that. Oh. And it's not rewarded in the same way that like, let's say like you you really marshaled all the, like the community, like the way you were treated, for instance, with the park is probably gonna be different than you trying to like really get your hands dirty and getting like real uh, real development happening within your community and, and convincing other people to do that, right? Well, even with the park early on, it was, you know, it wasn't all sunshine and lollipops either. I mean, there were, you know, people, many folks within the nonprofit world and the social justice world were just like, you know, we've got real problems. We've got, you know, education, you know, we need to deal with and tenants' rights and, you know, and health. And I'm just like, yes, and we don't have any place to, to hang out and play. Right, yeah. So I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying, can we do this too? And to be, and it was wonderful, um, which I learned how wonderful it was, is even though they didn't help, they didn't like They attack. celebrated it yeah, later on. They, yeah, they yeah. celebrated it later on and they didn't yeah. attack while I was doing it. Yeah. So, and then they, then they claimed it as theirs. And I'm just like, That's you know great. what? That's, That's a good. sign of progress, I exactly. guess. Exactly. Yeah. I take it. But yeah, other, other, other things were just, yeah, there were definitely like full frontal attacks. It will give us a little bit of an architecture of the nonprofit mm. industrial complex. Like what are the different, who are the different players? Mm. What are their incentives? And where might they have things wrong? Yeah. So I think the nonprofit industrial complex is just like any other industrial complex. I mean, I just we sort of borrowed it from um, you know, the military industrial complex where it, it it's a it's a mechanism that exists to perpetuate itself. So you start wars, you know, so to sell. 
you know, uh, ammunition and the rest of it. Um, same thing with, with a nonprofit industrial problem with a, a complex. If they're problems, you know, you don't really want them solved because, you know, then what would philanthropy, what would, you know, the social justice and other nonprofit organizations do if you actually did what they say they did, which is like, you know, we want to work ourselves out of jobs. And I'm like, Y'all still have jobs, but the problems <laughs> are still here. So come on, guys. It's like billions and billions of dollars, you know, go, um, you know, to these same problems, yet they've not changed. And as a matter of fact, some of them have gotten worse from health outcomes, education, um, justice issues, the whole shebang. Right. So I'm like, let's, can we try something? Just, let's just try something else. Yeah. And that isn't, hasn't been met with like, you know, open arms. <laughs> what would you say like that big tension is that you face? Like when, when you were to pick like one issue or, or maybe if it's one example of, of some project you've worked on that I think illustrates that tension the best. Oh, um, oh gosh. I mean, I could say a, a number of them, but you know, definitely opening up a cafe, you know, as a way to, you know, support the development of, you know, an entrepreneurial spirit, you know, uh, celebrated third spaces that are neither work nor home that actively build community and, you know, create more, you know, of, I think of a stickiness for people in our community to sort of see themselves and, and support each other. Um, it was different than your typical kind of, you know, let's build a community center and put on a show. Yeah. Um, you know, or like set up, you know, more, more and more health clinics so that, you know, we can manage the lifestyle related issues that people are dealing with versus like dealing with like, what are some of the, the issues around actually being in a community that, you know, is, is, um, oftentimes devoid of the kind of local economic development, you know, the kind of public spaces that actually make people feel like their neighborhood is where they need to be and yeah. actually helps boost their, not just economic, but their mental health yeah. as well. So why don't we do that? And I, re I also remember when we were walking down, I think it was your street, you were telling me a story about this, you know, you were pushing to get some kind of, I think it might have been a rezoning to allow for like, I, I think some kind of like secondary rental market or something within people's homes. You remember oh, what I'm yeah, talking yeah, about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yes. Yeah, what happened there? Because I remember being puzzled by the response that you got. Oh, yeah. Um, so... Our community, well, certain blocks in our community are actually zoned so that you can actually build um, uh, additional dwelling units up on top, like literally just like add them on top because it's like there's only two-story buildings, but you're zoned to do like four stories, say, for example. And it was just like, well, well, that could be really interesting if you do this, you know, for the people that are that own those homes, you're adding value to their homes, which is a, a proponent of wealth creation, yes. which is, and we know about the wealth gap in America. So why are we not thinking about that? And, um, but instead it was just kind of met by some of them anyway, you know, as this like, you know, seditious thing where it was just like, that's just going to mean gentrification. I was like, I don't understand how it means gentrification when, you know, most of the people who own these buildings live in them yes. and are from this community. But again, but that's like the twisted thing yeah. about, and I think there's the like sort of like the, you know, the nonprofit <laughs> industrial complex kind of like does this, which I think on some level is just sort of related to the the way that that frankly white supremacist thinking actually is like come into everything in this country where, and, and I think it relates to poverty as well, wherein, you know, communities are only supposed to behave a certain way. So when we start talking about things like, money and wealth generation is just like, that's not what we do. Like, yeah. who says that? Yeah. I mean, and it's often the progressives who are beating that oh, drum the worst. God, they are the worst. <laughs> yeah, They're the amazing. absolute worst. So tell me a little bit about this, like how you think of gentrification, because it's not how most people talk about mm -hmm. it. And I think 
Um, you invite some heat, I think, in the way that you talk about it, and I respect totally. that. So tell me about it. What's your take yeah, on, well, on this I, term and how it's used? First of all, I think what we need to recognize about gentrification is that it's actually a byproduct of reurbanization, wherein you know you've got people like baby boomers, you know, and millennials both vying for the same type of property, right? And, and when you talk about reurbanization. The, the context is, and I think this is obvious to most people, that there was a period of time where people moved to the suburbs. Yes. And now they're moving back. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so they're liking, you know, this like whole urban context. You could walk to places. You've got access to, to public transportation. And it's just sort of like, it seems like a no-brainer, right? Yeah. But the problem is, so there's just, and, and there is not enough supply to meet that demand. So let's recognize that. And then there's also this like complete knee-jerk reaction to more density. So yeah. like, oh my gosh, we can't have, it's like, okay. Excuse me. The our, our, all of our cities are expanding. So yes. what are we going to do? But and no, we're just going to like scream about yeah. like, oh, we can't build taller buildings. Oh, we can't do. Yeah, this. we're we seeing that here. I'm, I don't know if you follow oh. it down here, but they're fighting every every development is not good enough. Nothing. And the thing is, what they do is they never say they're against all density. They're just like that building isn't good. But then the next one comes. That that one's not good enough either. This one isn't good enough. And this and in the end, no building is good enough for exactly. them. Exactly. Uh, and then you know? stuck in the middle, you know, are the folks, you know, who have been in those areas that have been disinvested in for so long, but suddenly now it's like developers are wrecking, well, it's not suddenly, because that's the thing. Gentrification doesn't start when you start, when you start seeing things like cute um, cafes and doggy daycares. It's when and the places developers where, swoop in and buy people's property. No, yeah. it's long before that. Oh, Actually, really? it's long before that. It's when we start believing that there's no value in those communities mm. than when they're when we're already there. So by the time you see the manifestation of that, that's already after, you know, folks have been led to believe like, oh, you you want to buy my my property? Fine, I'll sell it to you because I think this is a crappy neighborhood. Right. Whereas the And person that gets to your vision, right? Yep. Like you have to you have to there's I think we use traditional statistics that are important, like life expectancy, educational statistics, mm -hmm. and I'm as much of a believer in those statistics as possible. But I think there's an and, right? Like there's flourishing, mm. right? Like what does it mean? Just we, beautiful. Nobody is like, I want to just live. They want to have a great life, you know? Yes. Yeah. And so I, I think these things can coexist and in many ways. They can help, right? Yeah. Um, and but how do you build this economic diversity, right? Because like it seems like most of the time, what happens is either a neighborhood is neglected mm -hmm. or it gets the kind of attention that right. pushes people out. So right. how do you get that balance? Right. right. So the, you, exactly. So I think people are familiar with the whole idea of gentrification, you know, which sort of like leads to displacement, you know, when people feeling like the development's happening is not for them. And the other kind that I refer to in my book is called poverty level economic maintenance. Whereas somebody's making some money, whether it's off of the health clinics, the pharmacies, which we know is a multi-billion dollar economic engine, but again, people aren't getting any better. Right. Um, you know, sub the, you know, uh, affordable, quote unquote, affordable housing, especially for very low income people, developers make an enormous amount of money through developer fees on it. They're not doing it out of the kindness of their hearts. Right. And so you have poverty level economic maintenance, you've got gentrification, and I think there's something in the middle. Yeah. And that's our talent retention strategy, which is number one, acknowledging that there's always, you know, we've never been devoid of talent, you know, coming up from our communities. We've had a problem with keeping it and keeping everything that's associated with actually building economic, um, I think spiritual, emotional, and as well as just like that kind of community well-being where people feel like, whoa, I live in a pretty cool place. Like, look who, look who's here. Look who I'm inspiring. You right. know, it's just, and we're, we need to see more of that. And that's yeah. why we've worked on the kind of economic developments that, that really help people see that in themselves because we want it to reflect back on them and show like, 
actually y'all are making the community what it is. And a part of it is, is goes beyond any one project. It's attitudinal. Yes. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the sense that some for some members of your community and the and that nonprofit industrial complex, they'd almost rather see an outsider come in and make money off of them mm-hmm. than you. They, they and part of what it. they're like, part of they're reacting to is this weird sense that like you're wrong for making money off of quote unquote your community. Like, am I wrong? Like, I'm I'm sensing a little bit of a double standard. Well, that's what I think. I mean, you don't have to be, you know, white in order to, like, really embrace those white supremacist attitudes. That's how powerful it is. And, you know, and it's it's more than 400 years old at this point. So, but that whole idea that there is something wrong, you know, with these people in the community, so much so that some of us, if we're not actually working to go to examine and acknowledge it, we will take that in. And I mean, it was, I, I experienced it myself. You know, it's like growing up knowing that, you know, I was told I was a smart kid and I should grow up and measure success by how far I got away. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, I need to get out of here. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. And when looking back, I was just like, you know, I regret feeling that, but I completely understand yeah. why. It's almost like a sign of failure if you go home, you know? It's yes. Like, yes. You, you know, you're, it, it, and you overcame that, right? And what I find interesting also is that you have a different perspective on affordable housing. And I think this is like, takes a lot of courage to even go there. Because to say you have any issue with affordable housing is like, I'm against like puppies and rainbows, you know? It's like, <laughs> what is the issue with affordable housing as it's implemented? Obviously we want people to have affordable housing. Sure. Like I keep making these caveats, but who knows who's listening. Like, but the way it's implemented, tell us about it. I think we need to have a range of affordability for lots of different types of folks within our communities. Because what, when, when, but the word, the words of affordable housing basically uses code for like the lowest income people. However, when you see, you know, those, and, and it very highly subsidized almost always, because again, people would not be doing it if they weren't making money off of Mm -hmm. it. So again, people need to understand that. And most don't, they just don't. So, and that's a problem. But the other, um, you know, part of this is that when you concentrate of that type of affordable housing and all of the other issues, the kind of poverty level economic maintenance that I talked about, you know, it's, it's all the health clinics. It's like, you know, the kind of 99 cent stores and as, as like your main source of food, you know, not right. having great grocery stores, things, you know, community centers and all just all together, you're concentrating poverty. And when you concentrate poverty, you concentrate all of the other issues that the nonprofit industrial complex and the government says we're trying to deal with from low educational attainment to um, low, um, worse health outcomes to higher rates of folks being involved in the justice systems and their families being affected by it. Those are just stats. That is data that you, that I can point to any place in this country and show that. But instead, it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, she's like, you know, punching above her weight. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like who's trying to be somebody she's not supposed to be. And I'm like, you know what? I am being exactly who I'm supposed to be. Thank you very much. Yes. And what are some of the big changes you would make? Either like the the mm. legal changes, like policy, uh, or and or attitudinal changes you'd make. Um, you know, what's so fascinating to me, in particular in the communities, okay, so I'll give you an example, like in the in my part of the South Bronx, in particular at Hunts Point, you know, the the home ownership rate has dropped down to less than 7% over the last like 20 some years. Almost all of those sales have been to predatory speculators. So the families that sold their home, and there are horror stories about like how little people sold their, their, their homes for because they didn't understand the value. And I know this is happening all over the country where, um, you know, uh, predatory speculators, which are just like 
just not even an inch above like slugs, if you ask me, um, you know, are fully take advantage of the fact that many people don't understand the value of their property. And, you know, all of the governments and all the county seats and wherever those, those areas are, um, let those type of often six-figure financial tr transactions or should have been six-figure financial transactions just pass muster through the Department of Finance without like a word. And but what effectively is happening is that those families lose any hope, any opportunity to create and and continue to generate wealth. For Can their I make families. an observation? I could be wrong about this, but it seems like there's a group of people who kind of fall through the cracks within the system. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like either like the the extra wealthy they they do fine in our system. They mm. they run shit. Yeah. Uh, and then the really poor people, not well off, but but there's such a focus of the political system on them. Yeah. And then you have these people who have a little bit of wealth that, and, I, and my, I'm not claiming that poor people have it great. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying like, there's this next level above them yeah. that get totally neglected completely. within the system. Completely, you know? yeah. So the fact that there's like no, like a, like a public defender for that, uh, you know, if you are committed or, or accused of committing a crime, there will be a public defender to make sure that you understand your yes. your rights and everything else. When those, when you sell a house to a predatory speculator who probably got it from you because you didn't know what you had, 100%. because you've not been given an opportunity to even learn that. Yeah. Nobody cares. Yeah. And I'm like, so we're actually advocating for a, like a public real estate defender, you know, in those communities. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, because, and, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes, but um, it's just luck. Yeah. And, uh, but you're right, you know, for the, the I mean, I literally, I, I talk about it in the book at one point, like there was somebody who was running for the, the council, the, the Congress seat um, up, in, up in the Bronx. And, you know, I got, you know, I'm a prime voter. So it's like, I, I'm on all those lists. And um, so I got a call from somebody working on a team. And and so I asked, I was like, so how are you going to be supporting, you know, homeowners, you know, the, the few that are left in these yeah. communities to make sure that they can stay. Yeah. And this person literally yelled at me. No, the, the candidate? Or their team. So yeah, yeah by association. I, I yeah. know this candidate. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, and um, <laughs> yeah. probably yeah. Um, yelled at me. Well, what about the poor people? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, sounds right. Sounds like the, <laughs> the sounds like the progressives I know. It's like, They're and all, then they wonder why people go running in open arms to candidates who suck on the other side. Because yeah, yeah. what's their? Uh, at least they have. At least they suck. I know. I just. I'm not they even just don't sure about that. Feel like they're. Ugh. They don't feel now. Now South Bronx mostly community color. Change change the dynamic. Make it a white you know, lower uh, um, middle income family. And then you bring in some of the identity politics and you start uh, to get the sense of why people are totally. enraged. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it's it's baffling, yeah. you know, it's baffling. Anything else you think about when you're thinking about like the kinds of changes that you'd want to make? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, just literally, I think about just like specifics that I've seen, like not been able to to be realized. Like a family, you know, who raises up their kid and they do go to college and they love being where their family is and they have a have a family they if they want to live close to to their mom or dad you know which could help with childcare and all just like have that kind of like close feeling we're not creating housing yeah. for them yeah. because it's just like no it's like they're making if they're just doing 
okay. Yeah. Um, you know, if they're like, let's say, for example, most of the housing in the South Bronx is not being built for like, you know, a, a family that, you know, has a, at the head of it, say, you know, a, a teacher, you know, and, and, and a city worker. Well, cause they're, they're maxed out of affordable housing, right? Exactly. So they, 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 they go and above they make the too cap. Much money. Yeah. They yeah. make too much money uh -huh. for affordable housing and not enough to afford the new stuff that's being yeah. created. And then, not but, that there is any new stuff even being created. Really, I know. But, you know. And this is the thing. It's like, you know, can we just look at that? And go like, what would actually be the kind of thing that could strengthen, you know, the, especially the communities that we know are struggling right now. Right. And, um, you know, affordable housing for different economic levels, because we, we, we tend to forget that there are people in our communities who actually are not destitute. Right. And, right. and it's just like, what about them? Yeah. And, and oftentimes there are the ones, cause I'm watching it. Like we see it at our cafe, frankly, yeah. you know, people who have just decided to like sort of stick around because they, they can and they want to and they see, you know, their, their well being tied to their community because they want to the community to do well. And they recognize that part of the value that they bring, you know, is their example. Yeah. And and their and their and their entrepreneurial spirit as well. I would throw something else in there too, because I remember you showing us this development that you had proposed, right? I remember you had you had been part of some competitive in quotes process mm. where there was some major development uh, under consideration, and you, uh, as part of a team, had proposed like I thought what, what was a beautiful plan, and they wound up going with an outsider. If I'm oh yeah, no, I mean I it, literally raised the issue of using the the former Spofford Juvenile Detention Facility site, which had been closed down. Uh, you know, thank God because it was a horrible, horrible place and didn't do good things for kids. Um, but it was a vacant five acre plot of land, and I, I remember Spofford. Now I'm thinking as a kid, they used to threaten that was yes, the threat. You're going exactly. to Spofford. <laughs> That exactly. A lot of teachers. A lot of teachers did that. Yeah. So it was sort of yeah. crazy. And um, when it closed, I mean, it went to the Bloomberg administration. Like I went to them and was just like, we can do like mixed income housing and mixed use commercial development there. But it was to the de Blasio administration. Mm -hmm. um, they decided. The, he's the mascot of some of these dynamics. We're yeah, really. About. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah. <laughs> okay. Whatever. Um, so, but anyway, he, so, but they decided to finally actually do a proposal, you know, to get people to solicit um, information about it. And, and and I actually built this incredible team um, because I was like, make full use of this crazy idea. You have talent retention and mixed income housing and mixed use commercial development in a place like Hunts Point, which is, has been known, you know, as the poorest congressional district in the country. And after a while, it's like, come on, it's really, that's, you know, I'm a little tired of that. I think most of us are, but yeah. every, a lot of other folks were just like, that's not the way I want to be described all the time. And so we built this incredible um, project, uh, or rather a, a proposal, 1,200 units of mixed income housing, including 100 units of home ownership for low income people yeah. to get them in the door. Um, we had about 80, excuse me, about 200,000 square feet um, proposed for commercial and light manufacturing and cultural and all sorts of cool space. And the idea, you know, was like 80, 80, like 80,000 square feet was from light manufacturing, which was like, you know, and we were recruiting businesses that wanted to, to, to settle. Which, what South a Bronx. great place for that, by the way, because it's so accessible exactly. to so many places yep. over there. 800 yeah. jobs we would have had. And the city ended up doing what they normally do, you know, and it was like we had a really beautifully diverse team. We had more women and minority. And for um, those who don't really follow it, though, what does the normally do look like? What is, what is, what is that? Normally do. So again, this is, this yeah. is, 
this will give you an example. So because we value diversity, we had women minority-owned firms as well as two white A lot of teams. people local? Uh, yeah, people. definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I was definitely the most local out of yeah. everybody because there aren't that many developers like coming yeah. from the South Bronx. That's I'm trying to like promote more. Yeah. And um, then there was, <laughs> and but the team, of course, that won was led by two white men. Yeah. You know? And what and wound it, up going up? What did they put there? Um, um, mostly just they would call it mixed income, but it was not a mixed income. It, yeah. It's a low income housing project. And initially, when it won, and this is what was so ridiculous, um, they actually made up businesses like they were. They did not exist, but except on paper. Yeah. And and it was just like you've got to be kidding. But they still won, and there was a big health clinic, and there was lots of community centers, and like a tiny sliver of commercial development. And since then, thank God, they realized, you know what? Maybe we should consider like activating like a more, um, you know, job producing spot in here. And they did years later, but it was it was just so ridiculous to kind of watch that. Oh man, yeah. Well, okay. So let's end on a positive note. Yeah. Uh, last time I was there, you toured us in a I think it was a former train station. Yeah. Right. It was you were outlining this cool. Vision, update us like for those who don't know what I'm talking about, tell us what it is and where we stand. Oh, absolutely. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, it's uh, so we acquired a, a former rail station that was designed by Cass Gilbert, the same architect of the Woolworth building, one of my favorite buildings in like the world. And um, and so he was, did make these little these little rail stations. And when we acquired it, you know, the plan is to, to transform it into an event venue. Uh, my dream is that it becomes like, the hottest music venue like in the city because we interestingly enough hunts point used to be known as like um this this oh, ridiculous we had this beautiful musical you know heritage like literally a block away from where the rail station is were palaces for dance halls you know it started with in vaudeville and then it went to latin music and and now you know now they're like you know uh chain stores yeah but, I want to see this happen again. And what's the status of it? Oh, it's so we actually went through. So it's since it is a historic building, we're having it listed on the historic register. We passed the first part of that application. And then we're also looking to, um, you know, make sure we get the historic tax credits because we want to maintain as much of the, the beautiful historic integrity of it, but, but really make sure that we can use it. In a, in a very modern way. Yep. And so we did a little sneak peek of what it's going to look like, um, you know, to the rest of the world when we're fully done. Last December, oh, wow. we um, opened it up just for one day. And we did during the day, we had a pop-up market with local vendors selling all their stuff. And then in the evening, the, the Bronx-born actor Malik Yoba, who's in- Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, from, he's so from awesome. From New York uh, Undercover. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's doing some really awesome stuff now. Now he's a real estate developer. He's still acting. I mean, he's just oh, yeah. like- he, he's, Great He's show. hilarious. Yeah. Totally. He's doing some good stuff now too. And uh, I really want to see him in the, in the end because they're doing cool runnings again. Oh yeah, he was yes, in that too. He yeah. was in that. And then, Is he going to be like the coach And they're doing now? A, a redo uh, and I'm just like, oh please God, let him, let, let them bring him back. So- <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And uh, what's the planned opening? When do you oh, think it's oh, open? So wait, you got to hear this because it was super super cool. So um so he's now a filmmaker as well and he did a series about um real estate development in New York City and I've featured in the first episode. And so we did a screening of that and then we had this unbelievably beautiful um you know music uh concert that night featuring like lo local and actually like people with followings like hip hop and also rock. It was awesome. It was the acoustics in this place are just like 
It's magic. Can't wait. I can't Beautiful. wait. Beautiful. Keep me posted on. Yes, wow. it's called Bronxlandia. That's what we're calling it. What did you say that one more time? Bronxlandia. Oh man, that sounds <laughs> great. Well. Uh, Plug your book one more time sure. and, and also where people can find you. Absolutely. So um, my book is available wherever you find your books. Um, but I encourage people to, to support their local booksellers. You can do it on bookshop.org or wherever. And um, there's also, and we've got a special going on right now. If, you, if folks buy uh, more than you know 10 or plus books, then... I can by March 1st, then I could actually join their book club or organizations like, you know, read along, whatever, just because I really want to make sure that folks are having these kind of conversations. As, as Lin-Manuel Miranda said, who actually blurbed my book, this is an important conversation worth having. Oh, amazing. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much, Majora. Um, you're such a joy to talk to. Right back uh, at you. And I cannot wait to come check out uh, your newest business. Cool. Thank you so much. 